Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary? Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler, the Institute's director. In this installment, Weschler talks with Tony Kushner, the playwright who received the 1993 Pulitzer Prize for Drama for his play Angels in America. It concludes with a reading by Scottish-born essayist, poet, and translator, Alistair Reed. I'm Lawrence Weschler, the director of the New York Institute for the Humanities, and along with Eric Kleinenberg over here, the director of the Institute for Public Knowledge, we are convening this day of consideration about solitary confinement from various different angles. I thought I'd start just for, by telling you something about the picture you see here of the, the toilet from solitary confinement. If you look at it closely, you'll see that it's beaded. And it's the work of the artist Liza Liu, who some of you may know about. She began her career by spending five years beating every surface in a kitchen, every surface, the, the water in the sink. From there, she went on to bead a backyard, including a million blades of grass. That got her a MacArthur. <laughs> As well it should, I think. More recently though, in fact, after she got the MacArthur, she moved to South Africa and began working with Ndebele tribes uh, women who are, have an incredible tradition of, of beading. And they began doing some South Africa specific sorts of works such as beading prison cages. You can see that's everything there is beaded, including the barbed wire and uh, prison walk, the sort of places where people are allowed to walk in South African prisons. That's where they get their exercise. And then one of her most amazing pieces, it seems to me, was she beaded an entire solitary cell. This was her response to the traditional white cube, you know, gallery setting. This is, you want a white cube, I'll show you a white cube. And it was out of that that she, in fact, it was part of that originally, but then she separated it out that she made this toilet, which, of course, in the tradition of modern art, Marcel Duchamp and so forth, is a loaded image. It's also, if you remember her name, Liza Lou, she calls it Lou, so it's a self-portrait. But for our purposes, it's an occasion to think about solitary. When we began thinking of this, and when I was talking to Eric, we were thinking about the way in which there are right now, at this minute, 80,000 people in solitary confinement. That is arguably more people in solitary confinement in the United States today than at any other place at any time in history. Another American exceptionalism to be proud of. By contrast, in Canada, for example, there are 300 people in solitary confinement. And we were trying to figure out how to make this real for people and how to bring people to a conversation about this who are not the usual suspects, who are not the people who go to all the ACLU things and so forth. And it occurred to me that one way to do it would be to invite a range of people, at least during the morning sessions, who are creative people of all sorts, people who work with insects, people who work as uh, scientists, mosaicists, playwrights, uh, monologists, and so forth, to talk about a fantasy which I think a lot of us have had at one time or another uh, about what we would do, how we would try to keep from going crazy 
if we were in solitary confinement. We'll start in just a second, but I thought I would tell a story that, about how I first became obsessed with this topic. Many years ago, I was reporting for The New Yorker in Uruguay. There had been a terrible military regime there. There had been a wonderfully kind of zany group of radicals in the period before that called the Tupamaros. And the military regime crushed this group. You have to remember that Uruguay at that time was the single most democratic place in South America. It was uh, often called the Switzerland of South America. It had a marvelous welfare state, social security, all kinds of things. And then in the 60s, uh, the Tupamaros rose up and began doing kind of antic radical things. And eventually the military cracked down very, very hard. And during the 10 years of military regime in Uruguay, there were more people per capita in prison there than any place in the world. Probably, I imagine, the United States today has a higher rate. But in any case, the seven top Tupamaros were separated out and subjected to a regime of solitary confinement for over 10 years each, scattered among remote military outposts and put in the bottom of wells with grates above them. And I had occasion when I went down to Uruguay to talk with one of them, this marvelous playwright named Mauricio Rosenkopf. He had been out for about a year at that point, and I asked him how he kept from going crazy during that time. And he said, well, I guess as a playwright, I'm blessed with a vivid imagination. And so as often as possible, I would take long walks to the beach. And uh, I would spend the whole day sunning myself, had to watch out not to get a sunburn. One time, it was a huge problem, uh, I forgot to get rid of the Coke bottle on my way back and spent the next 24 hours in an agony of anxiety because I was afraid the guard looking down would notice the Coke bottle. And in fact, I had to sleep on top of the Coke bottle that night and I woke up with a terribly strained back from having slept on this Coke bottle. Finally, I was able to take another walk to the beach and I left it there the last time. I never made that mistake again. <laughs> he told me that during the last two years of his incarceration, he had had a very, very uh, intense intellectual relationship with a rooster who had wandered into his thing. And he told me about the conversations they had had about Hegel and other subjects. It was a very smart rooster, he told me. I asked him whether the rooster had been real, and he said he didn't know. Anyway, with that as a backdrop, I thought I'd start, we'd start the, today's proceedings by inviting Tony Kushner up, and you and I can have a conversation. So, Tony, I guess my first question to you is how do you respond to this story about, about Rosenkopf? And when I read A Miracle of the Universe, when it came out, whenever that was. Yeah, about 1990 or so. so yeah. Yes, um, I remember that story very vividly, and then you sent it to me when we were talking about coming here, and it filled me with the same kind of panic that I, I mean, I would, there was a guy next to Rosenkopf who went completely crazy and kept demanding that the guards bring him water and take him to the bathroom and just uh, be screaming and screaming and screaming and couldn't stop. That would absolutely, without any question, be me. I would not be the person with the rooster. I mean, it's interesting that he says as a playwright, he has a vivid imagination. I don't know that I feel that I have a vivid imagination. I really like talking to people, uh, which is what I think uh, playwriting is really about. It's dialogue. And the idea of being deprived of that. Um, and uh, I was incredibly relieved. I had forgotten that detail that they gave him a sort of out of date scientific Americans to look yeah, at. That was another one, yeah, one of the other guys, yeah. And he, I guess, 
we became a physicist. Physics, physics from reading it to make some sense of it. Um, I'm enumerate, so I don't know that what does that mean, but at least in pictures and words to look at. All my life, I've had intense nightmares uh, about. I, I, nightmares. What, what sort? What sorts of nightmares? Just of being um, buried alive or being stuck in solitary confinement. Um, and every time I've come across, I was asked uh, last year. I decided not to do it. Do a screenplay about um, the whole WikiLeaks. Uh, Bradley Manning uh, mm -hmm. case, and and uh, although I have complicated feelings about Bradley Manning and Julian Assange and and the whole thing, I'm not uh, an anarchist, and I and I, I think that it's a uh, there's a lot of unexamined nonsense from my uh, comrades on the left about WikiLeaks, but and Bradley Manning seems to me to be you know a person who's in many ways in a lot of psychological trouble was before he was arrested but he's been in solitary confinement let's keep that in mind through this whole day to day that if you want a face for the 80,000 people we'll have a few here later on but Bradley Manning is one of those people who has been in solitary confinement the whole time right and, and entered exactly psychologically troubled to begin with it's clearly in some sense a form of torture and and really disturbingly not even torture for any, you know, ostensible, I mean, not that torture is good if you have a purpose, but yeah. there's really nothing that Bradley Manning at this point can be expected to tell anyone. He, yeah. he, he acted very much on his own. So there's a, there's a kind of a creepy feeling of just um, abusiveness. I don't know if he's still in solitary. As of the time that I was doing research, he absolutely yeah. uh, was in and out, but was. And even though he was a person who it seemed to me had issues, He's apparently displayed this uh, Rosenkopf's level of durability and strength. Two things that have just come out. My fantasy is that the playwright sits in a cube by himself and generates dialogues and so forth. But of course, one of the things you just pointed out is that in your case, and I think that's probably true of other playwrights, that in between the time that they sit in things by themselves, they go out and they talk to people, they try cadences out on people. Well, you go into rehearsal. I mean, you know, with honor sitting there. I mean, poets, I admire them immensely. I think uh -huh. poetry is the greatest kind of writing, but I, I could never do it. I need to be, uh, I mean, it's, it's a difficulty facing playwrights because you then have to leave the rehearsal room. My friend George Wolfe says, you know, it's time to leave the party and go back into your solitary again, you know, but it's obviously not all that uh, difficult kind of solitary. The trick of it is to remain, I think, uh, developing as a, as a playwright is to be able to plunge into the incredibly gregarious world of rehearsals. And, you know, actors mm -hmm. are just the best people in the world to hang around with. They're the most fun. I wouldn't marry one, but they're the most fun people on <laughs> earth to be around. And, and, uh, and then you have to go back and be alone. It occurs to me also that in a way it's like the dilemma of exiles who, when they are forced out of their native language, daily contact with their native language, which is to say the contact with other people, that it withers and it can be extremely dangerous. Yeah, uh, although I, I think that we actually, playwrights don't have a native language. I mean, we're, we're amphibians. We're, we're writers and not writers at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's what I love about, about doing it. It's a very peculiar art form mm -hmm. uh, in that regard because you never settle comfortably anywhere. Talk a little bit more, though, about the anxiety of, the anxiety of being by yourself. I think it's probably connected in some way to, uh, or rather the, the fear that I have about writing is probably connected to this. But, the, you know, there's a, there's a way in which you're, uh, I would imagine, uh, you're forced into a direct confrontation with yourself with no possible distraction and with no assistance from interaction with other people. And it's a profoundly unnatural thing 
for any human being to be in complete isolation. There's no such thing as a single human being. There's no such thing as an individual in one sense. We're so deeply connected. So it's, really, it's profoundly moving the story of the rooster. I don't think that you said in the book that the rooster, uh, and he talked about Hegel. Yeah, I was saying. Uh, I think what you said in the book is just that there was a rooster that showed up at some point. And I imagine at some point you sort of stopped caring. When I've done civil disobedience kind of things and getting arrested, it's always scary when you are in the clutches of somebody else and you realize that you really actually have been deprived of any kind of agency. I mean, you really, and you know, I've never been in jail for more than like a day, but I've, I've always found the idea of a long time um, forced to be alone really, really um, terrifying because I, I think it would test something that I'm not confident would withstand the, Daniel Boyarin, who runs the Talmudic Studies Department at UC Berkeley, and he's this wonderful, he's a, he's a rabbi, and when he was in the IDF in the Israeli army, he um, had to man an outpost in the desert where he would have to stand with a gun and stare out into the darkness in the desert for eight hours. His job was to stand there and stare out and not do anything else. So he started bringing books with him and he would read and he got caught several times and they were threatening a court-martial and put him in, in jail and he had to get a psychiatrist to uh, write a, a report saying that, that he had a mental illness if he didn't have a book to read, he would go crazy. And that sort of gave him a, a medical exemption from being on guard duty. But I talked to him about it and he said that it was just, it was, he really tried, but being without a book, just staring at the black, and that was, uh, stayed with me as a kind of a vivid image. Years ago, got very interested, in, and I still am interested in American anarchism as a, as a radical left tradition. And I read uh, the prison diaries of Alexander Berkman, who was, Emma Goldman's lover and uh, a man who, after the, this incredibly um, vicious assault on striking workers, decided to assassinate Henry Clay Frick and um, attacked him in his mansion with a knife. And because Berkman wasn't really a violent man, it wasn't very big either, he managed to stab Frick a couple of times in the leg and was put in Leavenworth prison for 17 years. But he spent, I don't remember how many uh, years, I think the first four or five, intermittently in solitary confinement, and uh, begged uh, Emma Goldman, and, and he got letters to her somehow through his lawyers, I think, to come to Kansas with cyanide capsules that she would smuggle in, and, and if he was allowed to meet with her, they would find a way to trade them, and that he could kill himself because he couldn't stand it. She two times, I think, took the train from New York to Kansas with the cyanide, and once made it all the way to Leavenworth and checked into a hotel, but both times turned around and came back. She couldn't do it. She was no better with the Sinai than he was with she, the knife. She couldn't, she loved him and she couldn't do it. And then Voltaire de Clare, who was this uh, sort of some, somewhat forgotten figure, but who was an incredibly great, an anarchist writer and kind of the Dionysian uh, anarchist as opposed to the Apollonian, you know, to Emma Goldman's kind of, you know, positive uh, revolutionary spirit. Voltaire is this very, very, dark and but just an astonishing writer was also in love with Berkman who was very hot Voltaire said I'll do it and she went all the way in and got into the room with Berkman and then couldn't give them to him in the diaries he writes very openly about the uh, terrible stress on his soul on his psyche of being in solitary and then one of the things that makes this, the diary so extraordinary is that he writes about physical relationship, a sexual relationship he had when he was let out of solitary with another prisoner, even though he was heterosexual and 
was with Emma before he went into prison, and then when he got out, they had moved, uh, they stayed friends, but he mm -hmm. picked up with another woman. But he writes, and this thing was published, I think, in the 19, early 1920s, and he writes very openly and says, if it hadn't been for this man, and not only for our friendship, but for the physical act mm -hmm. of love that we, I would not have survived prison. I know I would have found some way to kill myself. It right? sounds like something that's percolating for a play. The last play that I wrote, The mm -hmm. Intelligent Homosexual's Guide right. to Capitalism and Socialism with the Keys to the Scriptures, which was at the public theater last May, the main character is a fictional relative of uh, Vito Marcantonio, the six-time radical congressman from East Harlem who died of a heart attack in the 50s. And um, uh, this guy is a made-up cousin of his who lives in a brownstone in Brooklyn and is a longshoreman who uh, won the guaranteed annual income in a uh, dock workers' strike in the early 70s. So he hasn't actually worked as a longshoreman, uh, and he's now retired from not working. And in the immense amount of free time that he's had collecting the guaranteed income, he's taught himself Latin and uh, has been translating the epistles of Horace. And the play is about his decision. He had attempted suicide at 71 the year before the play begins, and then at 72, he calls his three adult children back to the family brownstone to tell them that he's decided that he's going to do it. And he's worked out how to do it this time. He had tried cutting his wrists before. And, and, you know, this is a... I translated, with what I remember from high school Latin, Epistle 16 from the first book of Horace's Epistles. Like most of them, it goes all over the place. There are themes that tie various things together. And uh, after talking a lot about, uh, about rich people and poor people and making some very salient points about the problem about being rich and, and how it undoes you, Horace writes, the good man, the wise man is brave enough to say, as the disguised God said in Euripides' play, the Bacchae, which is actually not in Horace, I added that line because I think that's what he's talking about. Pentheus, king of Thebes, again, in Horace, it's, he's not identified. What terrible things can you do to me? Because uh, uh, the disguised god is Dionysus and he's in Pentheus' prison. And uh, Pentheus says, I'll take everything you have. My cattle, you mean? My farm, my possessions and bank account? Take them. And Pentheus says, and I'll shackle you hand and foot and hand you over to a sadistic jailer. This prisoner replies, God will free me as soon as I ask him to. And in the Bacchae, of course, that's what Dionysus said, but he is God. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he's decided that he's had enough of these games with Pentheus, the prison just completely collapses and vines sprout out of the rock. And what Horace writes is, God will free me as soon as I ask him to. What the character's saying is, I'll die. That's my understanding. The last line is always death. I don't, that may be cheating. In, in the uh, Latin, it's... Um, Opinor hoc sentit moriar, I can die. Uh, Mors ultima linea rerum est. So it actually is the last line is death. I don't know if in ancient Rome a line meant a line in a play, but I thought that was a kind of wow. it was a kind of good fun. And, and uh, this is a man who he's he's a, a, a longshoreman. He's also been a member of the Communist Party. He's a, from a family of Italian radicals. His grandfather was an anarchist, his father was a communist, he's a communist, and he was an organizer for the party all his life. And he left the party uh, after the, Cle the, the Cleveland Convention in the early 90s and the collapse of Gus Hall and all that stuff, and then came back 
He rejoined after 9-11. It's a kind of a, it's an ideology and a home for him, but it's also become a prison for him. He feels completely isolated. And I know a number of old communists who feel this way. I mean, real, really bewildered and, and abandoned by mm. history and mm. by the world. And he's learned this dead language that nobody can speak anymore. And ultimately is choosing to die. I mean, he says to his daughter um, when he finally sits down and explains, the first thing that he says is when he was young and reading Marx, he could see the world as this uh, extraordinary a web of systems and interconnections and could understand that if you just readjusted things slightly, you could upset a balance that had been put into place with great violence and a new kind of violent force could be released mm -hmm. in the readjusting, which could change the configuration in the direction of justice and the possibility of life for most people as opposed to only a very few. And that that, that has slowly died out and that he feels this, this terrible isolation, uh, but that he knows he has a, a means of, in a sense, he has affecting his own, as a, re as a revolutionary action, as a way of, of, of refusing imprisonment, as a way of, you know, and if you can't change the world outside, you change the world inside. So I got very interested in communists who committed suicide, There's a, or, and also Louis Althusser who committed murder, the connection between issues of revolution and, and self-destruction yeah. and this feeling of isolation. So. I know you have to leave in a minute, but why don't you stay there because I want you to hear the poem that Alistair's going to read, and then I'll have a question for you. This is Alistair Reed. He and a Mexican poet got together and chose 50 poems each of English and Spanish and then translated them together for, I believe, two months in Guadalajara. Well, I'd like to say a little thing first about solitude. Seeing the word solitary in huge letters terrifies me all the time because we're used to dealing with living in time and solitary means the absence of time. I first uh, found this uh, during the war I served in the, in the British Navy in, in the Far East and uh, stationed in Ceylon, as it was called then. And we used to put to sea in a very small boat, a frigate with about 70 of a ship's company. With no orders at all, we were sent to sea. We were never told where we were going or, or for how long. And we would put to sea for something like 30 days without having any, there was no time. We were suspended at sea. And I found it one of the most frightening times, never having anything in view. And this is the real meaning of solitary, to be deprived of time, to be deprived of any expectation. As a matter of fact, after, when the war ended, we were sent to the Persian Gulf to continue this thing, and someone was inspired enough to give the ship a movie projector, which came on board with only one film, and it was National Velvet. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor's greatest role, which she was in love with a horse. We showed it, and showed it again, and again, and again, and again, 
and when we'd all seen it at least 26 times and knew the dialogue by heart, then the electrician who showed it showed it backwards. <laughs> and believe me, it began with Elizabeth Taylor riding in the Grand National, winning, being given a cup, and then getting up on a horse awkwardly and running over fence after fence backwards, joined every at everyone by more and more horses. <laughs> and it ended with Mickey Rooney walking backwards down a long road, getting smaller and smaller and disappearing. <laughs> and this did very little for our solitude, believe me. Although we complain, as writers always, about time, which is the main subject of being a writer, I think, dealing with time, to have time taken away from you is to be left completely in isolation. And this is where the imagination comes into play. I've never experienced solitary confinement, but I have done a great deal of solitary translation, which is very close to this experience of solitary confinement. To be alone with a, with a text in another language and a dictionary as the only company you have, and to wrestle with as a poem in one language, trying to bring it up to snuff in another language. However, there are compensations, and one of the few compensations is the poem that Wren has asked me to read. It's by a Mexican poet called Juan Carvajal, a very whimsical poet who unfortunately died 12 or 15 years ago. The poem is called a Thousand and One Nights. I told the genie of the lamp, I have only one wish for now. I would like, before dying, to see the aurora borealis and hear the music that precedes its coming. Gallop with the Tartars across the infinite plains of Mongolia be shipwrecked for nights and days, lashed to a flimsy plank, wake up in a forest full of water nymphs, be a camel driver in Ishfahan and a prince in Istanbul, both in the same day, spend the entire night lost in the Congo and find a magic plant, cross the Gobi Desert alone and map it precisely. Be a schoolmaster in a hamlet in Siberia. Travel with my favorite whale, either inside or outside. Be a man condemned to death against the wall or in the chair. Be the Pope in Rome by day and a whore in Singapore at night. Feast on a missionary with my tribe in Zimbabwe. Be the richest man in the world and the most depraved. Live like a Khandala in Bombay. Be a black poet burning on the crosses of the Ku Klux Klan. Be the grand master of the crime. Live in a lover's colony on a coral island. Paint a masterwork about nothing at all. Have a harem with Kim Basinger 
grossly deformed, be the mother of 20 illegitimate sons, live in us as an ascetic in the Sinai and discover there is no God, own a palace of marble and live in a hovel, see Earth from another galaxy, do lascivious things to delight an inflexible queen, be a boy with a kite on the slope of the Andes, be offensive to God and know that he felt terrible. <laughs> Comfort him and make up both of us happy. Be a benevolent tyrant in a most fertile kingdom. Be a trapeze artist and recite poems in the air. Call myself Achaveras. Be a cobra with its dark wisdom, its poison. Meet myself in the street and follow me. See me as the one who hates me, sees me, as she who loves me, sees me at the peak of love. Converse with Plato in his gardens. Make love on a chestnut horse at full gallop. Invent an unimaginable shocking flower at bird. Feel what that man was feeling that night in Gethsemane. Know all the seaports of the world. Tell them by smell. Marry the most beautiful woman in the planet and be extremely poor together. Be a salamander and live in the fire. Later, I'll tell you my other two wishes. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.